You know, last week we, we looked at chapter 1 in Luke and, and his account of Mary and, and her conversation with the angel. And we looked at, at what she would begin to endure as the mother of Jesus. And we talked about how she was given this indescribable gift. And I had somebody ask me earlier, what are those presents for? <laughs> These are the representation of our, our indescribable gifts. The first one is Mary's. The second one is Joseph's. And we're going to talk about them throughout this month. But we talked about... Mary's gift, being the mother of Christ, and how, how she chose to do the will of God regardless of the personal cost or sacrifice. And Luke does a really great job of sharing with us all of this information about Mary. But today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, because Matthew, I think, does a really good job of setting the stage um, and sharing with us this, this information about Joseph and, and looking at the birth of Christ through the eyes of his earthly father, Joseph. And so, just in case you're wondering what Joseph's indescribable gift is, it's family. And, and that's what we're going to talk about. You may be thinking, well, what makes family such an indescribable gift? And why would that gift require indescribable sacrifices? And if you're a parent, you know why that gift re- requires indescribable sacrifices. Because as we look at our own families, we can answer that question Family is a great gift from God, and no matter how dysfunctional you may think your family is, whether your family is blended or not, or whether you're a a single parent, or whether you have a large family or a small family, you will go to great lengths, when it comes right down to it, to protect and preserve your family. And Joseph does the same thing. But we need to start at the beginning. So before we can get down to Joseph's indescribable gift and his his indescribable sacrifice that I'm going to talk about today, will you pray with me? Father God... As we just open up today, as we look at Matthew chapter 1, at the, the words that, that he has written, um, I pray that we'll have a better understanding of, of what it is to appreciate the gift of family, that we will um, take what we see in Joseph and, and in his, his, the genealogy of Christ, and we'll take these things and We'll be encouraged by them. We'll be sharpened by them. We'll, we'll be able to go out and, and, and be a reflection of what we hear today. I thank you for the gift of your son. I thank you for people like Mary and Joseph who chose above all to, to honor you. And, uh, and I pray that we'll do the same. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We're going to start off right off the bat. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Everybody loves this. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah. And his brothers. And no, I'm not going to read through every one of those. Have you ever... Have you been this person? I'm going to read... Usually it happens in January. I'm going to read the New Testament. Front from, from Matthew... or Yeah, from Matthew... All the way to Revelation. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read straight through it. And then you get to the genealogy. And you get about verse 10. And you go, what is all this? We stumble through it. And then you finally give up on the first page. Who can get on with all those begats? That's That's the proper word, begat. They've defeated me on more than one occasion. I will let you know that. I'll be honest. And the New International Version substitutes the father of for begat, which makes it a little bit easier to, to swallow when you're reading that. But still, uh, you know, 
you, you just have to plod through that list sometimes. And you may wonder, why would Matthew start his account of Christ's life by tracing through his family history? Luke doesn't do that. That's not how Luke starts his gospel. Why would, why would Matthew start out with, with all those things? And, and he begat, and he begat. And, you know, here's the thing. And also, what was all that begatting have to do with indescribable gifts? You may be trying to figure that one out as well. When you look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, you will notice something. If you actually read through all of those lists in the genealogy, Matthew divides this list of Jesus' ancestors into three sections of 14 generations each. And these sections roughly correspond to three Old Testament periods. And those periods, if you want to write them down and then go back and, and check me on this, the first one is from the beginning of the Hebrew nation with Abraham through the patriarchs and the judges to the consolidation of the kingdom. The second one is from, from King David through the period of the kings to the exile of Israel. And the third one is from the days of Israel's captivity to the coming of, the, of, of our liberator, Jesus Christ. But, but the purpose, what's the purpose of this? And, and what does it have to do with Joseph? And something we need to remember here is Jesus is the indescribable gift for each of our people that we're going to talk about this month. And Joseph's gift, like I said earlier, is family, realizing he was taking on the responsibility of, of being the earthly father, of raising Jesus. And, and so in that, as we go a little deeper, I want to share some things. And I'm going to give you a little bit of what I like to call my version of the History Channel, um, which I call What You Didn't Know. And I was trying to get some theme music for it, but it just didn't happen. But I think this could be the next best cable thing. So here we go. Matthew talks about these 14 generations in, in each section. Uh, but a comparison, when you take his list and you compare it with the Old Testament records, you'll see that there are some discrepancies. There, there are actually several generations that, that have been omitted from, from Matthew, uh, that Matthew omitted from the second section. And the third list is also missing a generation. <gasps> it's scandalous. Say it isn't so, Matthew. In Sunday school today, Tom said that there's no uh, discrepancies in the Bible. And that there the, are the, the, no, uh, no controversies, that the, there are no flaws. But here, Matthew has done this. He's, it's, it's just scandalous. I don't know what to think about it. So I had to study a little bit more. Matthew appears to have arranged these sections to have 14 generations because he wants us to understand something more important than the names themselves and where they're, where they're at. His purpose, he states right here in, in the first line, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of Joseph. Wait, does your Bible say that? The son of Joseph? Does it? Look at it. You're, you're just agreeing with me. What's, what's that first line say? Does it say a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Joseph? No. Man, they weren't even going to call me on it, Scott. Yeah, all right, yeah. That's, that is not what it says. He wants us to understand that from the beginning of his gospel, this book is about a person being Jesus with traceable historical roots. A person that actually lived. Human blood flowed through his veins. Jesus didn't just appear as a phantom out of nowhere, but as the legitimate issue of Jewish lineage. People, family matters. And family is a gift. And the genealogy traces Jesus' roots back to two of the most important leaders in Jewish history. Their founder and their greatest king. Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's no accident of history. And he's traceable. But the one whom God promised to send to his people, that's who Jesus is. He's the son of David. God promised David he would establish a kingdom of which there would be no end. That he would have a son who would continue his father's rule. A lot of people 
thought that Solomon seemed to be that likely successor in this eternal kingdom, but Solomon couldn't live up to his father's high hopes even. And now, now, granted, his reign began well with that high promise even when he, he asked God for wisdom so that he could rule. And I thought, there you go, Solomon. That's good. But as he got older, he proved himself to be a little bit less than average, at least from our perspective. It doesn't seem the epitome of wisdom to me to marry 700 wives and add another 300 concubines for good measure. Guys, that's not good. You know what happened is, is Solomon here, he, 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 he goes from this divinely inspired ruler uh, to a place where luxury and sensuality just weakened his court. And, and, and he just, he wasn't the son of David who God's promise would be fulfilled through. Jesus is also the son of Abraham. God called Abraham and established a covenant with him so that he could bless Abraham and use him as a channel to bless all the families of the earth. Abraham had a son that, that at first seemed that might be a good, a good successor. His son Isaac then had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons and with them, the descendants of Abraham became the nation of Israel. But in spite of of Israel's special relationship with God. The nation did not prove to be the channel for blessing the world that God envisioned in Abraham. Something or someone else was needed. Matthew was going to show us in his gospel that someone else that God had longed for, that God had in mind, was Jesus. As you check out the ancestors of Jesus in the Old Testament, you may be surprised at what you will find in his family. They're not a thoroughly respectable lot, if you will. Some were famous like Solomon, David, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And some, on the other hand, were more infamous than famous. You know, there's this amazing break off from custom here where Matthew is writing in this genealogy where he even includes women. And you may think, well, what's the big deal? Everybody has female ancestors. Without them, it wouldn't work. But the Jews never mentioned women in their genealogies. They never traced their lineage through a woman because women didn't count legally back then. And you know the neat thing is about Jesus? He would do more than anyone else in history to change the status of women. And here, Matthew kind of subtly hints at that change when he begins to mention some of the women in Jesus' family line. At the very end of the list, Matthew carefully avoids saying that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Instead, if you jump all the way down to verse 17, look at this. He writes this, what Matthew says. He says, Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You see, Jesus is the son of God. He's not the son of Joseph. And since Matthew is writing his book to Jewish Christians, and all of them trace their lineage through their fathers, he includes Joseph's ancestors. A genealogy that read Jesus, the son of God, wouldn't really have satisfied those readers at that time. They wanted to know about Joseph's family. So, so he, Matthew follows convention for the most part. And he lists the women, and that kind of announces his independence of the uh, conventional wisdom, if you will. R.C. Sproul says in his commentary on Matthew, he said, He has something so important to say that he will not scruple to bend genealogical rules to say it. And such women he mentions, and there's exclamation points in the, in the commentary. He mentions these, this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. This is verse 3. Tamar, the deceitful. Tamar seduced her own father-in-law in order to have a child, twins actually, by him in Genesis chapter 38. There's a strange inclusion for the genealogy of royalty. They drop down to verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab of Jericho was a prostitute. 
The next line introduces Ruth, the mother of Obed, whose father was Boaz. Again, Ruth was an admirable woman. She was an ancestor that you could be proud of, but she wasn't Jewish. She was a Moabite woman. In Deuteronomy 23.3 decrees, no Moabite shall come into the congregation of Israel down to the 10th generation. Yet here is Ruth, the forbearer of Christ. Man, this stuff, I get geeked out reading this stuff. We can't overlook Bathsheba, verse 6. King David was the father of Solomon by her. She was Uriah's wife. And that story in itself reads like a daytime TV soap opera more than it does a tradition of Christianity. (laughs) Jesus' family tree is not all that entirely admirable. The people in it, like I said, are less than average. And even some of the most respectable members aren't without blemish. I bet his genealogy makes you a little less ashamed of your own heritage or where you've come from, or what you've done in life, or maybe mistakes you've raised in your family. I think that may have been Matthew's point. He knows that Jewish people traditionally were were judgmental and, and even somewhat prejudiced. And he foreshadows some things here and some changes that Jesus is going to make when he writes this genealogy including among them a new respect for women and a heightened appreciation for the full embrace of God's saving love. An embrace that gathers uh, to God the Israelites and non-Israelites, heroes and rascals, society's leaders and society's low-enders. Christ doesn't recognize a group of second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Even to a Gentile woman, a prostitute like Rahab is within reach of God's love and of Christ's saving grace. You know, in Matthew's genealogy, this, this range of human frailties and possibilities is suggested. And Jesus, whose name means God saves, has come for just such people like them and us. Amen. Family is a gift. That's what I loved about that, that lullaby song. Joseph's lullaby is what that's called. And family is a gift. And family matters to God. And God wants to save people like Jesus' ancestors. He wants to save people like your relatives. Even the weird ones. He wants to save people like us. Divine roots indeed. So I've set up what the genealogy of Jesus looks like. Let's look at what Joseph is called to endure. Coming off of that that line, that lineage. Verse 18 in Matthew chapter 1 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Matthew narrates the birth of the baby from Joseph's point of view. Think about what I just read and put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment. This man, I could just only imagine the sleepless nights as he first found out about Mary's pregnancy. I don't know the time frame of the angel visiting Mary 
and then the angel visiting Joseph. The Bible doesn't say like, and then the next day, you know, but it could have been weeks. It could have been, I don't know the time frame, but I just think, man, as Mary tells Joseph, hey, by the way, I love you. I'm, I'm pregnant. The Holy Spirit is upon me and I'm going to have God's baby. What? It had to bother him because, because when we go back here, you know, it totally says her husband being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Obviously, he had a day or two to kind of start to digest this and to think about it. And I, and I can only imagine that just his heart and, and, and his mind and, and how things were going. And Matthew tells us this. So here he is. And I, and I think had he not been a righteous man, a man of unusual courage, that's how I think of Joseph. Because this is the time, like I said, when, when even your friends and your neighbors still had prejudices because of culture and because of, of laws and because of things like that. And, and I can just see him just tossing and turning and sleepless nights. And had he not been a man, a righteous man of unusual courage, I don't think he would have carried that shame that would fall upon him in the public eye when Mary's condition was noticed. Uh, it had to be explained as one of two things back then. A breach of their betrothal, meaning that she, they had intercourse which, you know, they should have waited until actual marriage, and, and that was a bad deal. Or even worse, a pregnancy caused by Mary's infidelity with another man. Uh, the reality is their friends and family and their neighbors, they could not have thought possible the third option. There's no way that they're going to believe that. And so here's Joseph toiling over what to do. And, and this remarkable carpenter of Nazareth, who, who actually could claim royal blood in his veins, when you look at verse 20 of, of what I read, acted regally and in his quite unusual predicament, if you will. He could have done several things according to both law and custom. He could have exposed Mary. He could have taken her right into the middle of town, called her a bunch of names, done all kinds of ugly things. He, he could have done that. He could have taken her to court. That was his right. At very least, he could have divorced her privately by handing her the, the writ of divorce, which is what, the, what we just read about. And that's, that's how binding this betrothal is. It's, it's like, there it is. The, the betrothal of marriage was a serious thing. But in his kindness, he chose a quieter means. The extent of his righteousness is revealed in his acceptance of the angel in, the, in his reassuring words. The angel tells him, Mary's not to be faulted. God has come upon her. Telling Joseph, the Holy Spirit has selected her for a great, even if a temporarily discomforting honor. And this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged. The word is betrothed. It means engaged, but it's, it's more binding than our word for engagement today. The betrothal period was for one year. Once betrothed, the man and woman were like husband and wife, even using these terms, except they did not live together yet. And Matthew is clear to state this. He says, before they came together. So sometime during their betrothal year, Matthew, or sorry, not Matthew, Joseph, sorry, Mary is found to be with child, not Joseph or Matthew. <laughs> Forgot who was writing it and who we were talking about. I got that. But, so sometime during the betrothal year, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. I can't even explain it. and I've got it written down. Joseph could never have guessed this explanation for her condition. No one would. And no one would consider it. But the angel calms him down and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so things move forward. It's okay, Joseph. Your wife has been true to you. And here's the kicker. Joseph, God wants you to raise his son on earth. Let that settle in on you for a minute. Parents, 
Raising your own kids is one thing. But then an angel says, hey, Mary's going to have a son. It's of God, and and you're going to be the earthly father. No pressure there. Man, this angel's telling Joseph, God is responsible for Mary's condition. And the child who's going to be born comes from the creator of the creativity of God himself. And he will be the son of man and the son of God. The angel apparently understood what was going through Joseph's mind because he's settling his spirit. He's explaining the situation. He's telling him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What's happening to her is of the Holy Spirit and it's of God. And this holy baby that will be born is to be called the son of God. He will go through the process of birth, being carried for a full term of pregnancy. Yet he would be different from all humanity. He didn't have a human father. His conception occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a miracle in the strictest sense of all. It was an act that only God could bring to pass. And only God alone can bring something out of nothing. Only God can bring life out of death, fertility from a barren woman like Elizabeth, and a virgin birth. Only God can bring a humble carpenter to raise his son. Have you ever wondered why Mary wasn't pledged to be married to to a king or a prince or or some sort of standing royal or an impressive elder in the city? Yeah, because those kind of people in history are usually missing a few things. Like humility. (laughs) Joseph realizes from this angel visit, dream thing that happened to him, not only is Mary important to him, but the family that he's receiving, this gift of family that he's receiving, is in fact a gift from God. I don't think that Joseph was quite ready for the next nine months. No man is, but I don't think Joseph was ready for what was in store for them. But we know from his lineage that he came from a long line of underdogs and, overachieve, and overcomers, and he was willing to accept this indescribable gift, not knowing the sacrifices that were coming his way. But nonetheless, he accepted them. Tradition tells us that his carpentry business most likely suffered because of his decision to stand by Mary and her ridiculous story of being pregnant by the Holy Spirit. History tells us of their journey to Bethlehem and then fleeing the country after Jesus is born uh, to hide him and to protect him. Not only do they, do they endure scorn and ridicule from others, but they have to leave the country for a while. And Joseph, in humility, understands that one of the best gifts that God gives us is family. And he's willing to take everything he's built up for himself. What would be his successful business? What would be his name in a community? What would be these things that that most men would strive for? And he took all those things and he sacrificed them for his wife, Mary, for her son, Jesus, and for his family. Why is this such a big deal? I'll tell you why. Because men... We don't like to be told what to do. We don't want somebody to come to us and say, hey, go do the right thing, which is what the angel basically said to Joseph. It's okay, now just go do the right thing. We don't like that. We don't like to be told what to do or where to go. But men, that's exactly what Joseph did. God laid it out for him. And Joseph followed God no matter what the cost. He sacrificed for his family. He did what was required of him and what, not necessarily what he wanted to do. And that, brothers and sisters, is what made Joseph worthy of this indescribable gift, is that he was willing to do what he needed to do. You know, the opportunity to hold the Son of God in his arms as a baby, and dads, you know that when you hold your baby for the first time, you will sacrifice anything for that little pink, wrinkly, wet, ugly thing. You were all ugly once. I've never seen a pretty baby right from the gate, okay? 
they, they got to clean them up and dry them off. Oh, but when you're holding your own, you're like, oh, you'll do anything for your family. So something like that makes this indescribable sacrifice a little bit more describable, doesn't it? What are you willing to do for your family? Who are you willing to follow? Men, especially, but all of us. But, but men, this part of the sermon is you. It's time for us to quit following our world and our desires and our lust and the things that we think we need to build up for ourselves. And it's time for us to start following our God. No matter what, no matter where, we need to embrace this indescribable gift of family and, and accept the sacrifices that go with it. We don't need an angel to visit us or a supernatural experience. We've got the whole word of God written down. We know what we need to do. All we need to do is respond to it and to live it. My question for you today is, how will you respond to God's word when it comes to your family? All we have to do is respond. But how? Will you move forward in a way that honors God? In a way that that shows your family, your kids, your wife, what, or wives, it shows your husband and your kids that you're willing to do whatever it takes to honor God in your marriage and to honor God in your family. I, I don't know where you guys are there. I don't know what, what that would require of you to move forward like Joseph in a way that honors God. But as we come to this time where we're going to respond, I want you to know the baptistry is ready. If you're at a place where you need some, some wisdom or something, or some guidance or some, some thought or some encouragement or some accountability, the elders are here. They'll gladly pray with you. But whatever your response is today, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And I just pray that you'll begin to pray, prepare yourself because this indescribable gift that God gave us that is family is more than what we probably deserve to begin with. And what we do with it, how we treat our family, how we raise up our kids... We'll all be held accountable for that. And there's the indescribable sacrifice part. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to do whatever it takes to honor God in your family? Think about that as we have our response time today. Will you stand and sing with us?